obviously the scripture citing did not get posted, but that's okay. Read the whole book, it'll do you good. Uh, actually, that comes from Matthew uh, chapter 11, verse 19, I believe. Anyway, my whole point as I come to you this morning is to share with you what I believe to be one of the simplest truths of the Bible. We all know Matthew 28, where we're told to go into the entire world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Well, in 35 years of preaching, the biggest complaint that I heard about any of my sermons were that they lacked practical application. So that's why I entitled this one, How We're Going to Fulfill the Great Commission. You need to know how. We know the verse. In fact, uh, years ago, as we were preparing to go to Brazil, or thinking that we were going to be able to go, I sat in a room full of other interested people, and the fellow that was talking to us told us, he says, how many of you know Matthew 28? And we all raised our hand. And he says, you know, the problem is not knowing the scripture. The problem is doing it. Amen. So that particular statement has stayed with me all these years. That was some nearly 45 years ago now. But I still remember him saying that and how it impacted me. For the last couple of weeks, at least, David's class, we had been looking at knowing the desire or the will of God. And I still prefer to substitute desire for will. If we know what God's desire is, we know what his will is. And God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to a saving knowledge of his Son. We know this. So we hire people to get it done. But that's not what Jesus told us to do. He was talking to me and to you and to all disciples around the world. You go and disciple very simple concept. There have been books by the library full written on discipleship. But I don't know that many that have gone beyond just describing what a disciple is and giving us examples through scripture of how the disciples were basically followers of Jesus. And I thought... Uh, that's true. I know it is. But how do we do it today? So I'm going to give you four points. These are very simple. The first one is one that doesn't come as a shock as you hear it. 
but it may shock you when you look at the application. Jesus was a friend of sinners. As you read Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's not a catalog of righteous people. Matter of fact, Romans 3.23 says we are all sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. Well, aren't we glad that Jesus associates with sinners? You see, here in the church for centuries now, perhaps, we've had this concept that you, you go to the sea and cast your net but you throw, a thing, throw everything back in the sea that's not clean. It's not ready to eat. It's not like you. It doesn't fit your taste. But Jesus said, all are sinners. That includes us, and that includes the people around you. And admittedly, the ones that are here today are redeemed sinners, and we're so grateful for that. but let us not forget where we came from. I'm reminded of a guy that uh, saw his neighbor across the street with one of those bass tracker boats. So he just had to have one. So he went to the store, spent several thousand dollars on a boat, a trailer, a motor, and then he goes down to the ocean. And the breakers were pretty fierce that day. And he was afraid of the water because he couldn't see what was in it. So he parks his boat on the beach, still on the trailer, gets up in the boat and casts his rod out on the beach on the sand. How many fish do you think he caught? Didn't catch any. And we all know the rest of the story as to why he didn't catch any. There's no fish on the beach. The fish are in the, sh in the sea. My point in telling that story is simply this. Maybe we're not fishing in the right spot. You don't have to go to a bar to find alcoholics that you can minister to. But you know what? Jesus hung around with sinners and tax collectors. He ate with them. He was more at home with the people who had nothing than he was with the preeminent Pharisees and Sadducees of his day. You don't have to go to an opium den to find an addict. Sometimes they live just a couple of houses down from you. All I'm saying is that we need to go where the fish are. And we've been taught all of our church lives, don't associate with those bad people. That's not what Jesus said. We're out here looking for people that look like us, sound like us, 
maybe have the same interests as us, and that's okay. I mean, that's, that's at least a start. But that's just the surface, folks. How many people do you know in this town? <laughs> that's almost an oxymoron. How many people do you know that you don't know? You don't know what's going on in their lives. You don't know how to reach them with the word because you don't know which part of the word applies to their situation. So the first point, as I said, was very simple. You just simply love as Jesus loved. He loved sinners. He loved us. And he told us to love others. He didn't put any kind of condition on it or any description. He just said, love others. The second point is just about as simple. Jesus gravitated towards people who are in crisis. All you have to do is read Luke chapter 2 through 8. And you're going to discover a whole bunch of people that Jesus interacted with that were in crisis. There was a paralyzed man. There were tax collectors. You say, well, how's that a crisis? They were personas non gratis. They were people without a country. They didn't belong anywhere. You had a man with a shriveled hand that Jesus healed. You have some disciples in a boat that's being almost capsized by the waves. Well, that's crisis, folks. Especially if you don't know how to swim. And I don't know how many of these fishermen knew how to swim. But they're in a crisis. There was a man with leprosy. There was the paralyzed man who had lured through the roof of a house. There was a widow whose only son had died. So a widow, she doesn't have a husband. Her only son died. Now she's alone. How is she supposed to provide for herself? Jesus took pity upon her and raised her son. She was in crisis. It was the crisis that we call death. And we're surrounded by it every day. He was eating a dinner at the home of Simon. And this sinful woman came in and began to wash his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair. So you get the upper crust up here and you got the sinner woman down here. And Jesus is with them both. She was in crisis because she was lost. But then so was Simon. Because Jesus turned the question on him and he says, who do you think loves more? The one that's forgiven less or the one that's forgiven more? And then there was the demon-possessed man on the Sea of Galilee. We call him the 
demoniac of the gatherings. Oh, and somewhere along in there, he's feeding 4,000, 5,000 people. Two different occasions, but these people were in crisis because they were hungry and there was no place to go to get anything to eat. So if you read through your Bible, what you're going to see is that Jesus is drawn to those people that are in some sort of crisis. Let me just mention a few that exist today. This is where the fish are. And we can minister to them. Hospitals, crisis of health, deaths. That's a crisis without even having to describe it. Weddings. How in the world is a wedding a crisis? Well, ask the groom. <laughs> ask the bride. She's leaving her mother and father and living with this goofball. It's a crisis. They're, they're rearranging their entire sense of values and, and their loyalties and, and everything that goes into making them who they are. Because some point down the road, the identity that he had and that she had when they got married is swallowed up, and now they're just one in virtually every way. Births. You say, well, a birth is a blessing. That's not a crisis. Yeah, unless your baby is born with some deformity or an ill health. When you go to a children's hospital and you realize that these little guys, four or five years old, are probably not going to live to see ten years old. That's a crisis. You say, yeah, boy, I'm not Jesus. What can I do? I can't heal that kid. Well, Jesus says you have the power to do it. What you lack is the belief. And even if he chooses not to miraculously heal that child, you can speak a word of encouragement and life to them and to their parents. Loss of employment. Is that a crisis? Well, why don't you ask the several million people that just survived what we call the corona scare. A lot of people out of work. And I was telling Deborah this, this morning, it never occurred to me. I didn't understand how it all went together. But we're watching To Catch a Smuggler on TV. You realize that there were just people like me and you out of a job. They don't know where their next paycheck's going to come from, if they're going to get a next paycheck. So they get involved in nefarious practices like smuggling dope for the money with no thought whatsoever about the consequences if they're caught. That's a crisis. Moving in, moving out. When you move in, you don't know anybody. When you move out, you're leaving everybody that you ever knew behind. 
So that's a crisis. In fact, many, many a time I've read a book on church growth. It talks about trying to reach those people who are new to your community. Why? Because they don't know anybody. They need family. They need people around them. They need to be supported, at least emotionally, while they're making that transition. So that's a crisis. I've got a couple of more here. I can't even read my own handwriting. Emotional problems, fires, storms, hurricanes, tornadoes. Those are all crises. Yeah, we see them on the news. We think all those poor people, they lost everything. But Jesus didn't say feel sorry for them. He said, reach them. You'll find no one more receptive to the gospel than those who realize the gospel is all that they can have now because everything else is gone. And the promises of God are so replete if they begin to believe even the smallest of those, they will know that God's going to take care of them. God's got it. God's bigger than that storm. God's bigger than that fire. Matthew 9.36. I wasn't going to read a lot of these scriptures because there's just too many of them, but I want to read this one to you because I think it uses wording that we can relate to. We don't need a Dictionary to define. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news in the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. I've never raised any sheep. I've been around a few sheep farmers, ranchers. They're not real high on the animal. It's not that they don't have value because they give us wool, they give us meat. But they're just not the brightest animal on earth. You share those things, and if you don't pin them up somewhere so that they can have some heat, the change in daytime to nighttime temperatures, especially in New Mexico, will kill those sheep. So they are helpless. They're being harassed, coyotes, wolves. Oh, and by the way, there is a scripture in here that says, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves. He's not sending you out as sheep among sheep. That's where we're trying to go. But he's sending us as sheep among wolves. It's dangerous out there. It's risky.
The third point that I've got is hospitality. That's a long word for make yourself at home. So often, when we think of hospitality, we narrow it down to food. Oh, that means we got to feed them. Or that means we got to house them in our home. Well, that would be hospitality. I mean, the Bible gives us that example. Here comes Abraham. These three guys show up. He doesn't know them from Adam. And he says, stay while we kill the calf and you eat. In the meantime, we can talk. Or Lot. Living in the midst of some of the worst place, places in the world, Sodom, has visitors come, and he takes them into his home, and then when these riotous men show up, wanting those men, Lot offers them his own daughters. Because hospitality is so strong in those Middle Eastern countries that you move in under their roof, you're under their protection. So here's some examples of hospitality. And I'm defining it a little differently maybe than perhaps the way we think of it. It's charitableness. It's kindness. It's graciousness. It's showing interest in someone. Consideration. Conversing with someone. These are all ways we can express hospitality. It doesn't require you to feed them or to house them. But it may require that. Are you willing? We all know the story in Luke 19, 1 through 10. Jesus passing through a village and there's this little bitty guy. He can't see over the heads of everybody in front of him. So he climbs a tree because he wants to see Jesus. He's heard so much about him. He just... He, he, he knows he's got to be special. So he climbs up into the tree, and he sees Jesus walking by, and then the unexpected happens. He never expected Jesus to stop and to look up in that tree and say, Zacchaeus, come down, for I'm going to your house today. Now, you say, well, was Jesus being hospitable or, hospitable, or was it Zacchaeus being hospitable? Well, Jesus says of himself, birds have nests and foxes have holes, but I don't even have a place to lay my head. So it's not like he's being hospitable in the sense that we use hospitality. But he's taking notice of this guy. He's called him down. He's making friends with him. He's going to go in and eat with him, teach him. And then he ends that paragraph by saying, today salvation has come to this house because Zacchaeus got the message. We've already talked about Simon and the banquet he's serving with the sinful woman in the presence. Jesus heals a blind man. In John eleven thirty five. Everybody knows that verse. That's the first one you ever memorized, probably. 
Jesus wept. Why is that in the Bible? Why do we care that Jesus cried? Because he's feeling the loss that his friends are suffering. He's being hospitable by simply being empathetic towards them. And I'm told that uh, the worst hatred in the world is not vindictive speech or action or violence. It's apathy and ignoring people. When you see somebody and you don't greet them, basically you're ignoring them. You're saying, oh, I, I don't even know you there. That's not Jesus. Jesus makes sure that people understand they're worth something. More than two sparrows for sure. Matthew 23, verse 37. We read this verse usually when we're talking about, I don't know, the latter part of Jesus' ministry or the end wrapping it up. I don't know how we define it, but Matthew 23, beginning in verse 37, he says, Sure, get that right. Yep. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. That's hospitality, folks. Just like Lot, just like Abraham, offering protection to the travelers. I'm talking about meals. Jesus didn't feed a handful of folks. He fed 5,000 at one time, 4,000 another. In Luke 22, one of the most perplexing, and it is perplexing to me as a Christian because I've, I've missed the boat so badly for so many years without reaching out to those who are in need. But here he is. We often turn to Luke 22, beginning with verse 7, to talk about the Lord's Supper. And it's heady stuff. I mean, it's good reading. You know that it's the fulfillment of the Passover that has been observed for thousands of years. It's important. It's an important time in Jesus' life. But did you realize... Trying to find the exact verse, but 
I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And then just a few verses down, we see Judas being released to go do what he has to do. You know, Judas actually partook of the Lord's Supper. Could you sit down with an enemy, a known enemy, and choke your food down, knowing what's going to happen? And yet Jesus shows that kind of hospitality far and away beyond anything that we could probably imagine. I want to end this section looking at Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, that's Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that's the lost, basically, all of us, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you're his child, God has made you also an heir. The hospitality of God of Christ and the Spirit exceed our wildest imaginations. He didn't just see us and have pity on us. He didn't just see us as lost and say, okay, you're saved. When you read through the New Testament, you discover that you get the righteousness that Christ earned. You didn't. But he gives that to you as a gift as you accept him as your Lord and Savior. You are now dressed in the righteousness of Christ. He didn't just see a wayfaring kid over here off to the side. He takes him home and makes him a son. More than that, an heir. That's the hospitality of our God. And the last point, The final way that we make disciples, not only go where they are, fish where there are fish, we meet them in their crisis, not with our wisdom, but with the wisdom of God. We're hospitable because we show an interest and we take an interest and we share with them all that we have and all that they need. And then finally, Prayer. How is prayer related to discipleship? Well, God can do what you can't do. God can put people in your path that you would otherwise never see in your entire life.
left to your own devices. When Marcia and I were in West Germany, we went to a uh, religious retreat in Birch's Garden. And there was a speaker there. Um, Joe Strachan was his name. He was from Scotland. So, you know, it's not that far from Scotland to Germany. So even though that was a trip for him, no big deal. We met him. We enjoyed his talk. Five years later, I'm sitting in the basement of the Sunset Congregation there in Lubbock. And guess who's at the podium? Joe Strachan. There was no way I could have organized that, arranged that, brought that to pass. And yet there he was. Which just reminded me of how small the world really is. You may see somebody in Kenya that you think you'll never see again. And lo and behold, they become a member of your family. How does that happen? So I'm telling you that prayer should, for the Christian, precede everything we do. James 5.13 talks about the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And then he goes on to explain how that Elijah, the righteous man, prayed that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain. Then he prayed that it would rain. And it did rain. We need to pray for the meals that we enjoy. And I'm told, I don't know because I haven't studied that culture that much, but in antiquity, the Jews prayed after their meal, thanking God for what he'd given them. Then here comes Jesus. And he prays to God before he does anything. He's a Jew. But he knows better than to think that all of this is because my little hands got busy and I made it and now I'll ask God to bless it. Nope. He sought God's will first. And so should we. Whether it's mealtime. Do I believe in healings? Absolutely. Do I believe in instantaneous miraculous healing? I believe in it, but I don't see it happen all the time. So don't get the two confused. Just because God can heal doesn't mean he's going to heal on your time schedule. It's up to him. But we know that Jesus bore our iniquities, our burdens at the cross, and we received healing through his scourging, the stripes on his back. Probably the best example of 
power of prayer is me, and able, me being able to say anything at all from the scripture. You know, there's a lot of people that can talk, but that's not proclaiming. There's a lot of people that can say words, but those words are vapid, empty. So you want to try to say something that will hit somebody somewhere and they'll remember. And if you don't remember that whole list of crises, that's fine. If you remember one or two of those, that's great. Because that's where the people are. Those are the people we need to reach. And the last thing I wanted to note was in Luke chapter 6, verse 12 following. Jesus has left heaven. He's come to earth miraculously. He's born in a way that nobody else has ever experienced. He grows in favor with God and with man. He astounds the doctors of law. He goes from village to village to village, healing people and teaching them the gospel. So it sounds like he can do it all. But in Luke 6, he goes off by himself and he prays to God to help him choose the 12 men that will continue that work. Not even all 12 of them could replace Jesus completely, but it took 12. And then one fell away and they got another one named Matthias. My whole point is this. We use prayer as a fire escape. Prayer is not when the building is on fire. Prayer is for us to address God with our needs. And we may not even know what those needs are. Look around you today. This congregation is about a third of the size, maybe a fourth of the size that it was in 2006 when I first came here. Are we praying that God will replace the ones that we've lost? Are we working with God to make disciples the way Jesus did? He loved people. He met them in their crisis. He was hospitable to them. And he saturated everything with prayer. That's really all I had prepared to say to you today. But I'm hoping that you'll realize that we have gone way over the top trying to complicate the presentation of the gospel message or trying to uh, re-engineer how you make disciples and the times have changed. And No, they haven't. This book is as timeless as the day it was written. If we'll do what Jesus did, and I heard a little Irish preacher say this, he says, if we'll do what Jesus did, we'll get what Jesus got. So as we conclude today, I want, to sh- I want to stop with a prayer and then we'll offer the invitation. Would you bow with me? 
Father in heaven, as we approach your throne, we realize that you are so, so good. Beyond our wildest imaginations, Father. You've made your desire, your will, simple enough for a child to understand. Father, so oftentimes we we use that lack of understanding on our part as an excuse for not doing what you plainly said. So remove that from us. Help us to embrace with strength and with hope and with power all that you have told us as your children to do so that your kingdom borders can be expanded. I don't care about Eastside growing, Father, so much as I care about your church covering the earth. Give us the Spirit's help and guidance in doing that. Put us together with people that we might otherwise never have approached, Father, and give us the words to say that bring life, Forgiveness through Christ. Well, we never saved anybody, Father. But your word has. Give us that assurance, that confidence that we may be lacking to be busy about your work and to realize that you've never asked us to do anything that we couldn't do. We offer this prayer up in the name of Jesus. Amen. You need to respond to the invitation. We'd ask you to come as we stand and sing.